The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in February 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome Kevin McCollum. Hi, Kevin. How are you? It's great to be here. Good. I'm not sure which title to use first. <laughs> Producer, <laughs> entrepreneur, manager of a theater, whatever. I, I, use, I use guy with a phone. Guy with, uh, with cell phone. Guy, guy with some phone to try to get people <laughs> to uh, join... Uh, Join the craziness of making shows. Well, just by way of credits, close to a dozen shows on Broadway, including a couple that are running right now, Rent, Avenue Q, and The Drowsy Chaperone, involved as a producer on all of those shows, and many other shows on Broadway, a managing partner of 37 Arts, a new off-Broadway theater complex, and the president and CEO of the producing office, which you founded in 1995. Also, for seven years, you had been the president and CEO of the Ordway Music Theater in St. Paul, so quite a list of credits. We have a, have a lot to talk about. I'm exhausted. <laughs> Just listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as we look at all of the things you do, Kevin, and the things you're juggling, I want to start with, really, your very newest project, In the Heights, which just opened uh, this past week off-Broadway, and I'll, I'll just put it out there. Who produces a musical off-Broadway with a company of 22 actors. How do you even tackle that? It flies in the face of everything we've heard about the challenge of doing certainly musicals off-Broadway. Um, you know, my belief on, on creating shows, especially new material, which really excites me by artists you might not have heard of, uh, In the Heights was written by a wonderfully talented man, uh, music and lyrics, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, and Kiara Hudis play, uh, wrote the book. And these are artists you haven't heard of. Um, but I don't think in terms of what is Broadway or what is off-Broadway, as much as New York is very much the center of the theater world. And to have a show in New York is the most important um, way to bring a new artist to an audience. And artists need audiences. So often writers write for their friends and family and other writers. But until you add an audience, you really don't know what you have. And one of the um, compelling things about In the Heights for me, it's about a community, a Hispanic community living in Washington Heights. It has a lot of, um, it, it's a story about where home is and first generation assimilation and the American dream. And um, we felt it was right to do it in a space that wasn't under the economics of Broadway, which can be crippling um, given how Broadway works and the amount of, uh, how much money the real estate costs and things like that. And I happened to, right after 9-11, I broke ground on an art center called 37 Arts. And 37 Arts was to answer the, um, the calling that most off-Broadway spaces are ex-storefronts. And we thought, Jeffrey Seller, my business partner of many things, and I, along with a few other people, thought, what if we built an art center for off-Broadway that had height, that had an orchestra pit, that had a 499, a 390, and a 299. And this is a build from this the is, ground up. We actually tore down a parking lot mm. to build a theater complex. A How little, do you tear down a parking well, lot? Well, that, it was actually a small parking lot for the push carts that sold uh, the uh, teriyaki and uh -huh. you know the different, the different uh, things on the street. Uh, it housed those carts. And uh, we bought it because... On 37th and 10th, which is not uh, not uh, the closest thing to Midtown, but it's an area which is commonly known as the Hudson Yards, which we felt back in uh, uh, 2001 was the place that 
New York could could have some further development. And uh, sadly and inspiringly enough, we uh, we broke ground a week after nine eleven. Um, we there was a definitely a, a pause and a hesitation and a reevaluation while Broadway was getting uh, back on its feet, and we felt well, there's no reason to stop now. We have to build its art center. And in building the art center, we attracted not many people know this. We also attracted um, uh, Mikhail Baryshnikov's company, White Oak. So we condoed three floors above our theaters, where he also is creating his own. Uh, arts initiative for the dance world. So we have a really wonderful uh, multi-use space. And uh, going back to your first question of how do I juggle it, everything I do seems to inform the next thing I do. And I don't really have a specific path or a plan except trying to stay conscious and listen to the influences um, of where the theater is going because theater is about people showing up and you never can really anticipate where it's going to go. You have to just be conscious of where it hasn't been yet. That's sort of what inspires me. And the fact that off-Broadway has become a... People have felt, well, there's, you know, off-Broadway, musicals don't work. I, I don't... I've never believed that. What I've believed is as the economics get more and more difficult, it's easier to say, oh, let's do this with four people, let's do this with three people, why don't we have one person play 20 roles? I think we're getting out of that trend, and I think people long for something they haven't seen before. And they're willing to pay almost any amount of money for something they haven't seen before. And that's what I look for. And In the Heights is the kind of off-Broadway musical you haven't seen before. It's very uh, it's very vibrant. It has a sound you haven't heard on a stage before. And it was a place that had the real estate we needed to fill the scope and scale of our show. The secret about Off-Broadway is if you do well, and uh, we are doing well, and we just opened last Thursday, um, is that the economics are pretty good Off-Broadway, um, in that if you think about Broadway and you think about you know an 1,100-seat theater, and let's say your average cost is 500000 a week, which is about the average, maybe a little bit more, you have to first sell those 1,000 seats. So to sell 1,000 seats eight times a week, you have to buy some advertising. And you're probably in the New York Times. And when a New York Times full-page ad is $100,000, um, you better sell some tickets. And it costs the same whether you're on Broadway or off-Broadway. Absolutely. So by being in a 462-seat theater, which is what we have because, you know, in every theater, uh, the public might not know this, but a 499 actually comes down to 462 after you have some lighting positions, some sound positions, some different equipment positions – the pressure to sell a thousand every night is not as great. Plus, I'm not selling my tickets for $110. My tickets are $75. So for value, people are seeing a huge, wonderful, new, brand new show, a surprising show for $75. And there are only nine rows. So but, every seat is a great seat. But you still have the pressure of selling 400 and so yes. odd seats yes. at $75 exactly. to pay a cast of 22. Yes. So the economics may be of a smaller scale, but I'm sure there's still the pressure to, there's to, to, pressure, pay, to but, pay everybody. Right, but the, your, your running costs are about a fifth. Uh-huh. And everything is what – what always surprises me about theater is nobody does the risk-reward calculation. Everyone talks about a show, this is a hit and it makes X amount of dollars or Y amount of dollars. The risk-reward ratio, all, in my opinion, is about finding the show and how much you have to spend per ticket to get an audience in. 
I feel there's a certain amount of people who care about the musical form that live in New York that want to see a brand new musical for a certain period of time. And if I'm in a 462-seat theater, I only have to spend X on advertising. Typically, a Broadway show is 100000 uh, a week advertising budget. Off-Broadway, it could be twenty a week. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you're also, your running costs are closer to, you know, the low, the low, six, the low six figures of about 100 a week as opposed to 500 a week. So it's about scale. And um, it's the best value in New York. If, you're, if you love musicals in the Heights, in my opinion, it's the best value you could possibly have as an audience. Well, we've been talking about money, but let's talk about the creative aspect. It's actually remarkable when we look at the productions that you've been most closely associated with. Certainly when Rent came on the scene, Jonathan Larson was not a household name. When we look at uh, Drowsy Chaperone, people certainly didn't know Bob Martin and company. Um, Where do you find new talent, and in particular, let's talk about Lin-Manuel Miranda, and and be willing to to take the chance to invest in, in these unknowns. I love the art form, and I love anybody who dedicates their life to musical storytelling. So I am always uh, a bit of a detective. And people know that about me and my business partner, Jeffrey Seller. We, we, are, we put ourselves out there in that uh, if there's somebody that has a piece of work that, uh, that, uh, that needs to be read, uh, there are ways to get it to us that are not that difficult. Uh, we have an office and Manuscripts arrive, and oftentimes we say, you know, it's not for us. But uh, on In the Heights specifically, Nevin Steinberg, who's a sound designer uh, who I use a lot, we were on a subway while we were putting Avenue Q in the Golden Theater. And uh, he said, you know, I've heard of this thing, and it's this Friday, and you might want to check it out. It's this guy who's really talented, and I don't know anything about the show. I just hear he's really talented. And so I showed up that night on a Friday. And Jill Furman was also in the house, who had known Lin-Manuel Miranda before because she had produced Freestyle Love Supreme, which was a hip-hop sort of improv group. And um, as a result, Jill and I, after we saw that, we went out for a piece of pizza uh, with her father, Roy, who also is a producer. And after a couple of slices of pizza, we turned to each other. I said, I think Jeffrey would like this. I and I, let's uh, let's go and uh, and get the rights. Even though this is not the show we're going to produce, Lin Manuel Miranda has a voice of music storytelling I haven't heard, and uh, th- it was just I hadn't heard it. I haven't heard it a story communicated in the way he was communicating it, which was the same feeling I had about Jonathan Larson, and the same feeling I had about uh, Bob Martin, and the same feeling I had about uh, Bobby Lopez and Jeff Marks, because. Most of the times, I've come in touch with shows with a couple of songs. It's not finished yet. That's where I think Jeffrey and I are most effective um, in because we love storytelling, we love artists, we're collaborators, and we try to um, we try to be a good audience for the writer while they're working on it to let them know, you know, this is where I'm not caring about our protagonists. This is where we have to, I think, think about this, and. Um, there's nothing more fun for us than to work with uh, a new talent and bring that that voice to the public. We mentioned a few minutes ago about uh, creating a musical off-Broadway, how that's kind of a difficult task. Many people look askance at it, like, you know, you can't create an off-Broadway musical and have it be successful. Yet you've done it with Rent, which was off-Broadway. Correct. Avenue Q was off-Broadway. Right. Drowsy Chaperone was way off-Broadway in Canada, and then at the Amundsen in L.A. Right. 
in the case of In the Heights or any of these shows, mm-hmm. do you look at a possible Broadway transfer from these off-Broadway shows? Is that one of the considerations when you develop a show like In the Heights? I, I think one of the things that hurts, I think, producing um, that I don't subscribe to is this is a Broadway musical or that is a Broadway musical. I never say that. I really say this is a musical. Where can we do it? Where can I get the real estate to do it? How do I get the real estate? What audience, what part of the nation or the world would embrace this? Um, Broadway is a destination where popular shows can live. But when you're doing something new that nobody has heard of, you better not go right to Broadway. You have to find an environment to do it first, which is why with Drowsy Chaperone, I went to the Amundsen. Um, even High Fidelity, which was a recent show that, that failed commercially, uh, we went to Boston first. Why? Uh, good college town. We were trying to get uh, that 20-something excited about the show uh, that were familiar with the source material, Nick Hornby's novel. And so opening cold on Broadway, even La Boheme, we opened uh, in, and we didn't have to work on the book on that one, um, but we did it in Italian. Uh, we went to San Francisco because we felt that was the town. And one of the things you didn't mention is I really broke into the business by starting a company in 1991 called The Booking Office. So I was a professional actor before that, and then I got my master's in film producing, missed theater, and really looked at what was happening in theater and the road was getting stronger and I started a booking agency and I represented other producers. So I learned a lot about the different markets in America and Canada and internationally of what the appetite was for theater going. And through that distribution knowledge, it helped me figure out, okay, if I'm going to produce a show like Rent, we we bought the rights to Rent. And the idea of Rent playing Peoria... This was not even in our thinking. As a result, I think it's played there a few times, and we've done very well. So we've beaten the old cliche, uh, cannot play Peoria. But but again, going back to that Friday night when you were seeing uh, this this, this young fellow, and you were thinking about In the Heights, was it in your mind at that point to put it in in your own space, 37 hours, and then eventually transfer to Broadway? Is that ever part of the the consideration? No, no. Um, You know, I always think... You know, what you see and what you build, those are all tools. It's never really a destination. What, what, what I try to do is what, what is lacking in the industry? What is lacking? And, you know, I built the buildings because I felt a real theater that didn't have the economics of Broadway was lacking. And the only theaters that, that, that were available, you'd have to go and make a deal with a not-for-profit company. And oftentimes... Um, I mean, there are many great theaters in in New York, whether it's the Roundabout or MTC or MCC. But unfortunately, the show you care about might not be the show they care about. And um, typically, Jeffrey and I work in where we have the rights first, and then we try to find a place to put it. And uh, it was difficult because I don't want to be in development. If I work on something, I want to get it produced as soon as possible for my relationship with the author. And because... I want to produce things. It's what I do. I, I'm not a developer as much as I'm a producer, and development is part of the producing. Um, not Development is never the destination. So as a result, it just seemed to work that way. There was not – I didn't feel that in the Heights, um, the story it became – remember, when I saw it that Friday, 
it, it is nothing like what it is what you see there was a, mm-hmm. there was this there was a story about uh, there was a brother and a sister and Usnavi who's played by Lin-Manuel Miranda who wrote it was not quite as central um, but I fell in love with Usnavi the character and I said I, if we can make him sort of the light and the street light and shine and we started working with themes of family and home and Lin-Manuel Miranda's experience here's a man who who obviously is second generation, he uh, uh, Hispanic, he, he went to Wesleyan, he had a very sort of uh, 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 very good sort of uh, view of his, his own uh, heritage, but also what it's like to live in America, that, you know, in the Hispanic community, you have a Latino community, in terms of you have a Dominican Republic community, you have a Puerto Rican uh, uh, community, you have a Cubano, and, and yet they all live together, but they all have their own also issues internally. And in what America represents, and, and in terms of the melting pot and the American dream, I felt these themes were very important to explore. But the show that was presented back in 2003 that I saw was nothing like this, but it had the inspiration. And and that's what I kind of look for. What gets the hair on the back of my neck to stand up? And Lin-Manuel Miranda's philosophy and who he is as a human being, uh, similar to how I felt about Jonathan Larson, were, um, were paramount in the decision of, I don't know what this is, but let's go get the rights and do it. In fact, um, we didn't have Kiera on his book at that time. And uh, after working with Lynn and Tommy Kale, who was also the director, who we've kept, and they've been close ever since Wesleyan College, and we thought that was right to keep them. Um, but we brought Kiara on to help with the book so we could really free up Lynn to really explore more of the music and the lyrics that he was uh, infusing such brilliance, I think, into this work. And it's 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 an exciting, new, um, uh, joyous musical. In fact, some of the criticism about the musical has been about, well, you know, it's about this community and, and, and where are the gangs and where are the drugs? And I, and I feel we also suffer from perhaps 250 years of sort of innate racism in our criticism because this is a wonderful story about a family. Uh, pursuing their dreams in, in in present day. It's another contemporary musical. If you look at Avenue Q, Rent, uh, even High Fidelity, uh, In the Heights, um, these are about communities in New York. And it's one of the reasons why we couldn't take In the Heights and open it in Denver. Because we felt it needed to be in New York, but there's no real estate in New York that can handle 22 people. Oh, wait, there's this building we built <laughs> that actually has an orchestra pit and can handle 22 people. That's why we produced it. It was the pl- it was the only place we could find that had the physical plant. And hopefully this theater and this group of theaters will encourage more producers and writers to write more than just a three-person musical. And I love three-person musicals, but not every off-Broadway musical has to be a three- or Mm four-person musical. So often people ask what a producer does, and you've touched on something very interesting, which is that Lin-Manuel was writing this show, you became involved, and at a certain point helped bring a book writer into the process. And the same thing happened with Avenue Q, where, where Jeff and Bobby were writing it, and Jeff Witte then came to the project. How do you... As a producer, as ultimately, in this case, a creative collaborator, 
How do you manage that process when you say to someone, what you've done is wonderful and I love it, but we think you need someone else? I think one of the things that, um, you know, Jeffrey and I are not very good valets. You know, if it's if it's cleaned and polished and here it's done, uh, it's probably not the right musical for us. I think what is important that oftentimes writers, you know, people go through marriages and oftentimes in a writing situation, they have a marriage with a certain partner or a director or a designer. And oftentimes where a producer can be helpful is saying, look, I know you grew up with this person. Oh, I know it was your dream to always write book, music, and lyrics. And we can pursue that dream of yours. But at this rate, it's going to take three more years. <laughs> now, if you let us sort of bring you some information of people we've met that we, again, we read a lot of material and we go to a lot of things. And I see many partnerships that I wish I could sort of say, you know what, you're wonderful and you're wonderful. But together, you're kind of holding each other back. Because you're in this role. Are, are you talking this... about friends who are dating? Or are <laughs> no, talking I'm talking about, about writing, writing I know, collaborators. But it's, the, the language is not dissimilar. No, it's very similar because, you know, uh, collaboration, you know, marriage is collaboration. Creating pieces of artistic uh, material is collaboration. You get your hands dirty with each other in every way. And sometimes um, those relationships and those roles you fall into don't necessarily help you grow as an artist. And one of the things that we did, and it's painful sometimes, and it's no fun. But you have to work with the authors. My job, as I've said to even Bob Martin and all the different shows I do, and sometimes when I'm talking to Bob Martin, I said, I'm talking to you, Bob Martin, the author, not the actor. <laughs> uh, and then sometimes I'm talking to him as the actor and not the author. But my job as a producer is to uh, help authors have their dreams come true and get their shows produced. And if I can get their shows produced, then they will want to produce more shows with me, number one. And number two, other authors will say, oh, those guys get shows produced. And um, and they're thinking of new ways to getting shows produced. So my job is to get to the marketplace as soon as possible because nobody makes money in theater until their show gets seen by a paying audience. Another, thing, another interesting thing about In the Heights, uh, we opened off-Broadway. And the first two weeks of the previews, all the tickets were $25. And the second two weeks, all the tickets were $35. And after we opened, we still have a $35 ticket, but we also now go all the way up to $75. And it's very interesting how when somebody, oftentimes when you open a show, the industry has been comping a lot. And therefore, the perception is it doesn't have much value. But if you, if you really charge $25, which is a reasonable price, and you put 22 people on stage... And you know you're not going to – you're not trying to make money those weeks. But what you're trying to do is saying, come see this show. It's $25. Take the risk. And part of our job as a producer is also to educate audiences to take risks on things they've never heard of before. Um, and that's, that's what I think a producer uh, – what I try to try to do is don't think about, oh, don't let cynicism win the day. Be a warrior for risk in that I'm putting it out there. I believe in it. Join me. And you know what? The threshold of entry is 25 bucks. And then what happens, more important than a New York Times ad, is how people talk about the show. I can't buy how you two will talk about the show after you see it, good mm -hmm. or bad. And mm -hmm. hopefully it'll be good. It was one of the ways um, um, 
basically all the shows, whether it was Avenue Q, which opened in the summer, Rent, which no one had heard of, uh, definitely Drowsy Chaperone, when, when dear friends of mine thought, really called me and thought they should commit me because I was bringing it to Broadway. <laughs> um, but it's the word of mouth. And if that's what a producer has to capture, has to capture a sense of excitement, of something new. And therefore, I think you have to think like a contrarian. I don't think you can think formulaically. I think the cost of... It's not, it's not a disposable income item. It's, it's, it's an investment when you go to a show. So sometimes you have to start the show at a certain price point to even out the risk that they've never heard of it. Well, we're talking so much about your business practice, your philosophy. Let's uh, let's jump way back and talk about you know how you first came to theater. It's sort of an interesting story in that you were not someone who was haunting Schubert Alley and standing in line <laughs> at the TKTS booth from the time you were 12 years old. No. You grew up in what is often thought of as a relatively theater-deficient uh, state, namely Hawaii. Yes. It, it, it might be Broadway-deficient, but the thing about the Hawaiian... Uh, uh, culture, and I was born there in 1962. My mother worked for CBS out there. And um, can I say that on XM Radio? Sure, you can. Uh, okay. Uh, and uh, so I, I grew up around a TV studio and a radio station, but my mother was also an actress, did a few Hawaii Five O's, and did uh, belong. Uh, we did a th- theater company, which is now called Diamond Head Theater, but back then it was called HCT, and it was on Fort Ruger. And uh, growing up, um, I performed with my mom, and I ran tech in theater. But I, I was around. And I didn't realize it. We saw Dorso played Sally and Follies, and my mother played Phyllis. And We saw Dorso started Mr. President and a few shows on Broadway. And Jim Hutchinson, her husband, was a dancer on Broadway, and uh, he was the director of this theater. And Peggy Ryan, and and all these people who actually performed on Broadway found Hawaii as their place to retire in their mid-40s when their knees were hurting and built new careers there. But they were gypsies at heart. And I didn't realize growing up and doing the Music Man there and, and Our Town and uh, my mother doing Candide there. And we would get the rights before anybody else because we were in Hawaii. So the uh, our friends at the uh, Rogers and Hammerstein organization or MTI or whatever it was called back then, they would license these... Broadway shows that were just done. Uh, because they weren't expecting they weren't a ex- national tour to was, show up. Right. So, okay, let's license it at that little theater. So we would work on this material, and no one had seen it necessarily in New York. So it was really open to interpretation. We did some wonderful shows at this 600-seat theater, and I ran. I did everything from run a carbon arc uh, spotlight to being in the chorus to being, you know, a child actor. And um, that's what was my after-school activity. Uh besides playing Frisbee. And in Hawaii, it was very, very masculine and cool to perform. In the Hawaiian culture, dancing, male, you know, it, it, it's ritual. In terms of, the, you know, it was very, you know, we had Mayday pageants. We were a very theatrical culture. When my mom passed away in 76, I moved to Deerfield, Illinois, a wonderful northern suburb, with, lived with my aunt and uncle because I'm an only child. And uh, they had two daughters, Marcy Heisler, who's a lyricist, and uh, Eileen Heisler, are my two cousins, and Eileen writes for television. Uh, and uh, they had just started a children's theater, but it was the most uncool thing you could do. Mm-hmm. So I was a 14-year-old. My mom had just died. I obviously was in a lot of pain. And I did what I always did, which was the theater. And I got teased a lot. But 
I realized then, oh, they don't know. They don't know how much fun it is because at that time, Deerfield was very sports-centric. They had just won the football conference that year for high school. Mm-hmm. and But I, I stuck to it, and I was like one of three guys in chorus. And then we eventually, my senior year, I got the high school football team to be in the in the student show, you know, which they were typically did a kick line, but they did more. And now <laughs> Deerfield, <laughs> it's called Student Stunts. We wrote oh, it ourselves. Right. And But now Deerfield is sending the entire choir this year to, to the Vatican to sing for the Pope. So it's really, the arts program has really grown since I was there. But I will say this. It taught me going to, having my life in Hawaii, moving to Deerfield, Illinois, then going to Cincinnati Conservatory of Music and being an actor. I've never had any fear of being a contrarian because I always say, oh, well, they just don't know yet. You know, and I remember that very much as a kid, like, oh, they've only had sports here as as the most important thing. And it was not considered a guy thing to do. And the one thing I will say to anybody out there, especially young men, um, if you... If you spend time in the theater, it will prepare you to be a better communicator, businessman, and sports are great. But I always say, you know, sports brings young people together to compete where one must win and one must lose. That's a fine ethic. But the arts ethic teaches people to come together to affect change and to promote new ways of thinking. And that we need to balance that in our school system. There I'm off my soapbox. On, on, on a lighter note, I'm just interested in how you convinced the coach to let the football team appear in this musical follies thing. Finally, <laughs> finally. Do it in baseball season. <laughs> well, finally they realized that um, that uh, there was a lot of very attractive uh, girls in chorus, and it was good to be in the theater. <laughs> if you were. Uh, actually, they realized that I think part of it was that we had really good teachers, and there was a change happening. It was 76 to 80. And I really think that our shows were better. Um, I was in every show. And I also, I also played soccer and played Frisbee. I brought the Frisbee Ultimate Team to Deerfield, Illinois. Uh, so we had it for two years that I was there. Um, and I just think because the teasing didn't work, I think we were able to get more guys interested in coming and being part of the shows. Because they, they realized, oh, I can get attention in another way rather than just playing football. You mentioned a while back you have a film degree. Yes. Do you ever work in film? I did. Uh, I uh, I got my master's in film producing at USC. Uh-huh. Jay Roach was my uh, TA, who's now gone on to produce Borat and also all the Austin Powers and Meet the Fockers. Um, and uh, I went there because I I was a professional actor. I was about 26, still playing Mordred and Arpad and Joseph. And uh, I was, you know, again, being an only child and my way of thinking, I was getting a little bored, even though I was making a living as an actor. Mm. So I applied to USC, uh, Peter Stark program in film producing, and I got in. And uh, I uh, did two years of that, worked for Disney for a couple of years, uh, was an associate production executive. And I I remember I went to, uh, Disney invested in a show called... uh, Largely New York, is that right? Uh, the Bill Irwin Bill show. Irwin was show. originally not quite New York, then largely not, New right, York. Right, right, right. And so I was at the studio at the time. Michael Pizer, who was working there, who came from theater, had something to do with it. I went into his office. He was the second at Hollywood Pictures at the time. And I worked for the Touchstone side. And I said, hey, you invested in this show. 
And I said, you know, I, you know, I love the theater and blah, blah, blah. And uh, he advised me if I really love the theater, I maybe shouldn't stay at Disney because they were never going to get into the theater ever <laughs> because there wasn't enough money in it. <laughs> and I was uh, getting married at the time. And I thought, you know what? I do. I should, I should pursue what I love. So um, I, I left uh, Disney and they were very good to me. And uh, that's when I started producing uh, shows first out of my garage in, in Studio City, and then uh, uh, I uh, I basically uh, moved to New York, and that's when I realized if I could figure out a way to work as somebody who represents producers, since I had no money, if I represent producers who were producing shows, and I could communicate to the um, to the theaters about what shows were coming up two years from now, that's a pretty good business. And I started it and uh, hired a gentleman named Jeffrey Seller, who in a couple of years became my full partner. And we uh, we created the booking office by going to people like Manny Eisenberg and different independent. Roger Horchow was very influential. In fact, he gave me my first big break in that he let us uh, distribute uh, Crazy for You. So you moved to New York without a job. Without a job, I was unemployable, and I had about, half of a company. And uh, about to be married or married at that I was point? married at that married time. That Actually, point. my first wife, Michelle Park, who was also in Crazy uh-huh. for You. Yeah. And so you had- we moved here, and uh, we, uh, you know, and uh, I started a company. Um, and it grew because, uh, in fact, I even uh, applied to a job when I first moved here. And they said, why are you applying to a job? I said, because I basically own a company that's about to be sold. And it, it was just a crazy, wonderful time where I just sort of made it up as I went along. And that has served me. And, I, again, I would encourage anyone who wants to get into the theater, know the rules, but know that, you know, the commodity you need more than anything else is a passion, a passion to do what you love to do. And uh, I love telling musical stories. I love being a part of that process of how do we heighten reality because every musical must start on the earth and end in the heavens for it to be for it to work mm-hmm. in my opinion. And so that ascension that of what's possible through song and story is um has always inspired me and I can't explain why. I just don't question it too much. You have an interesting perspective on the business in that as you say you started out uh earlier on with with the booking office you say distributing you were essentially out there um promoting shows to be presented at the various uh presenting houses around the country on behalf of those producers is that correct correct and we had to anticipate what they wanted two years before the show arrived and then for as john mentioned in the introduction for seven years you were actually operating one of these presenting houses what what is the situation on the road for shows? Because as a producer, you're creating product. On the road, you're, you're in many cases, accepting product, or in your case, you were selling it too. What, what's the difference in the dynamic between what people look for out there versus what, what we see here in New York? I think New York, you can still surprise people. Uh, one of the reasons I took the job at the Ordway was it was... Uh, right before Rent opened. And I said, uh, you know, I'll take the gig, but there's this little show called Rent I'm working on that I might have to take me away back and forth. We, we should mention the Ordway is in St. Paul. It's in St. Paul, Minnesota, yes. And it's a wonderful, wonderful facility. And um, I went there to learn because I was 33 at the time, and, and there was an art center, and I had booked an art centers, but I'd never run one. So, again, in my sense of keep learning while you can um, and stay conscious, I said... 
this is something different. Let me try it. And I fell in love with that area of the country as well, and I also loved what they were doing. The difference now is that, and, and back then, is that um, the road, you know, New York, is what I said earlier, that's really where you can launch a lot of information about your show. You can still come out of nowhere and surprise because you're an open-ended run. You have a, a tremendous concentration of media focusing on theater in New York. And many of the writers for the papers around the country come to New York um, for conventions, to, especially in the arts. So unfortunately, the road will always be somewhat reactive to what is hot in New York. And that's just part of what it is. Um, not like it's very different than a film business where you can go on two thousand screens. You could never open, you know, the show at the same time in three markets um, and expect any bang for your buck. But what you can do is you can do something like Drowsy Chaperone or perhaps In the Heights, which we're doing. You can open it in New York, and people know it's there, and they can discover it for themselves and take the information back. If enough information is taken back to St. Paul, or uh, uh, Des Moines or Chicago or wherever, then oftentimes you can you, – they will then want the show. But you need enough of the country to want it to create a real tour. Um, you know, if just Chicago and San Francisco want it, it's hard to tour. Maybe you then sell it to the Goodman and ACT and they're done as local productions. But to distribute it, you really need critical mass of at least 50 – 50 uh, markets uh, to create a viable tour. Using the word you've used several times about yourself, you took a contrarian approach to the road when Avenue Q bypassed the road initially yes. and went to Las Vegas. And I'm wondering, now reflecting on that experience, you know, how do you, how do you feel that did or didn't work since we're now, of course, going to begin seeing Avenue Q nationally rolling out mm -hmm. this summer starting at the Globe, I believe? Yeah, it, it starts as a license at the Globe and then it becomes a national tour in San Francisco and we are doing a full tour. I think it worked out beautifully for everyone, um, with the exception of maybe Mr. Wynn. Um, but I to think Steve Wynn. Yeah, Steve Wynn, where we went. Where you were playing. But, but this is what happened, and, you know, there's a lot of drama about it, which um, was fascinating because anytime you can get a show off the arts page and on the cover of the New York Times, um, you're doing something right. Um, because one of the things I often fault the New York Times for is that theater is so relevant to the lifeblood of this city that I think they can afford to really understand that when you gather people and you gather people by going to the theater, that's how you create a culture and a community. And theater is so important to our lives here in Manhattan. And, and yet sometimes I think we get short shrift. So going back to what happened was um, I went to the road first. We wanted to be on the road. And we got told, you know what? There's a show that just went out called You're in Town, another wonderful show. But You're in Town didn't perform that well as a tour. And we think Avenue Q is going to do the same thing. And therefore, we're only going to offer you X for the show. And it was very disheartening to me because I loved the show. And I felt because it's a very uh, inexpensive show to run, the price should have been higher. <laughs> and had, knowing all these buyers, and I told them that. And uh, we went back and forth. And lo and behold, while that was happening, um, Steve Wynn wanted to open a Broadway-style show. And he heard about our show, and he called. And... Um, he basically gave us the moon. He said, if you come here, I'll pay for the show. I'll build you a theater. 
You won't have to move. I won't have to pay for trucking. I won't. And I had all these investors. Uh, then that's what I do also as a producer is once it gets established, you try to earn their money back. And it was a no-brainer. There was, it was apples and oranges. And I took the win thing, and the road was very upset because we also, uh, that year, on uh, being the contrarian, no one thought we'd win <laughs> the Tony, and we did. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we were more on the map than they even thought. Uh, but I had made the deal with Steve, and uh, it was the right deal for the show. We ran nine months there. We made a tremendous amount of money for our investors, and the actors got paid more than they would have gotten paid uh, because they didn't have to pay a lot for housing. And um, now people want the show on the road again because now that we went to Vegas and became a story, more people heard about our show. And there's been another – we're still on Broadway. So we've gotten three more – two more years of branding about our show that no one would have – so it's a win-win. And we got the price that I initially wanted for the show. Well, back then though. Yeah. Before, when they said no, not not a road show. What was the perceived problem with it being a road show? Was it too edgy? Too language, New York? language. You have songs called "Everyone's a Little Bit Racist," which is, I think, one of the genius songs ever written for music theater. You have a song called "The Internet Is for Porn." You have a song called um, uh, "It's Okay If You're Gay." Um, it, it's hard to sell that in a subscription brochure. So what you have to do, and what is happening, is that this is the phenomenal New York hit. That is the funniest show you're ever going to see. And that's what the show is. It's a very funny, smart show. It's very easy to refer to it as a dirty puppet show, but that is not what it is. And unfortunately, the way sometimes uh, media writes about shows, it's easy to put it in a sound bite. Avenue Q is, is like your life, only funnier. And in what it does have that no one really talks about, the puppets are basically the Greek masks. We are allowed to be politically incorrect as long as it comes out of the mouth of a puppet. Because in our political incorrectness through a puppet, we actually get to the truth of how we're all a little paralyzed on how we're talking to each other. And I'm really um, – I, I find Avenue Q on so many levels so smart, so brilliant. And um, I think America is going to discover it. And the buyers now have had a lot of their board members come see it. You know, time – helps create you know it takes time is what I was saying about how do you get the word back to Des Moines and how do you get the word back to Cleveland and and how do you get the word back to Cincinnati sometimes it's just time and tourists and people taking oh I saw this great show called Avenue Q yes it has puppets but it's it's so refreshing and so fun and and that just takes time we never would have had that much penetration if we hadn't have gone to Vegas. Well, I remember John Trotaglia and Stephanie DeBruzzo were both here when Avenue Q was brand new on Broadway. This goes back almost three years. And they said when they were workshopping without the puppets, they weren't getting laughs. People were, like, giving them strange looks, and it just wasn't working. Mm -hmm. The moment they put the puppets on their hands and started talking as puppets, it totally changed the whole dynamic. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the audience got it, and they laughed, and they got into the show. It made all the difference, they said. It, listen, it's it's why the Greeks wore the masks, so they weren't arrested <laughs> afterwards. So what's the difference now if you go out on the road than it was, say, two or three years ago when you were considering? I think people just – more people know about the show. We are a three-year hit on Broadway. So it will be more acceptable now? It's more mainstream. You know, I remember when Rent opened. You know, it's interesting. Um, we couldn't get a group for Rent in the first three years unless it was a college group. Mm-hmm. Now, here we are in our 11th year of Rent on Broadway. We're a group show. <laughs> and it just says how culture – shifts towards um, new work. You know, I remember 
when Rent opened, there was a quote in the paper by someone who's a dear friend of mine who said, you know, the quote, it's a great show, but let's see if it lasts six months from now. Mm-hmm. And here we are. You know, you just don't know because your perception of where we are today, you can't anticipate the the power a new piece of art can have on your culture. Uh, rent had a tremendous effect. Everyone's saying, where's the next rent? Rent, where's the next rent? Where's the next rent? Well, I think people are still saying that. They might say it's Spring Awakening. You know, I don't know. But Spring Awakening and Rent are very different, except that they appeal to young people. But they're very different shows. And um, I think uh, we sometimes think there's a formula. And there's never a formula. But the longer you exist, the more how you were perceived at the beginning gets eroded into something else. And now Rent is, you know, it's a theatrical bar mitzvah. I mean, we're having 13-year-old girls come and, and, and saying, this is the first show that my parents are dropping me off at the theater and seeing on my own. And it's not, it's not, you know, Beauty and the Beast, which is another great show in terms of a certain age group. So I think what Broadway has done and theater in New York has done is we're starting to service almost every, every point of entry uh, of the theater. So Avenue Q is for a smart, sophisticated person who um, who's trying to find their place in the world. And uh, I think uh, when Rent, when uh, Avenue Q opened, people thought, oh, it's a puppet show. Now I think it's a brilliant musical comedy. Let's talk about another show that we haven't even mentioned, which you've produced, which is quite the antithesis of Rent or Avenue Q, uh, with some of the greatest music ever written for the stage and some of the, the oldest music ever written. I think you know where I'm leading on this. Irving Berlin's White Christmas. Yes. Which you produced originally in San Francisco. Right. And then expanded beyond San Francisco to both Boston and Los Angeles. Right. What's the whole backstory on that? That's a very different idea. Totally it's a whole different. different artistic endeavor. Uh, what's interesting about that show is that show... It's called White Christmas. Everybody wants it, but everybody wants it on December 20th to December 28th <laughs> or 27th. Uh, and uh, so I looked at different ideas of how would this be possible. And what we did is we created a show, a very first class like Broadway show. And I didn't feel that with Radio City in New York, there was no place to really put it in New York because the load-in and the load-out for a Broadway stage, in a stage house, given the way the unions work, is about a million and a half dollars. And just once, to get in and out. In and out. Theater. In and out. You just put a million and a half. And if you're only running 10 weeks, that's 150,000 amortization a week. And, and it's just impossible. The economics don't work on a two-and-a-half-hour show. Maybe on a 90-minute show where you can do 11 a week or 12 a week, you can earn your money back, but you can't do it if you're only doing eight a week. But it's a little less expensive in different major markets around the country. So I thought if White Christmas could work as a stage show, I could empower local markets to own the show themselves so that it's not touring, but it's a perennial in that town. And so what we did is in San Francisco it was very successful, and now we have a relationship where another production was built that Boston and St. Paul trade every year. And that comes out of my distribution experience and realizing the problem with touring is the most expensive aspect is there's about a hundred grand a week getting from week to week between the airlines, the trucking, the shipping, the rental. But if you can go and you can create something and give these theaters so they're not just dependent on New York distribution, but you own this piece of 
intellectual property in your town as long as you do it every three years. And we created a new, a new formula that we're still inventing. And, and Ted Chapin and Victoria Traub at Rogers and Hammerstein have been very inventive and, and it, with the royalty structure and the friends of Paramount who also control the rights. They've been very helpful to us as we explore this new business model. But we're in the infancy. We're only in our fourth year. And every year we do it, it's like we get another week's of informa- one week of information that you would get on a tour because you don't know until that next season. But what's happening is, is people are discovering the show where we just played uh, two very successful engagements, one in uh, St. Paul and one in Detroit this year. And it's a sit-down. We sit there between basically um, Halloween and the end of the year for six to eight weeks depending on the market. And everybody in that community says, oh, White Christmas is going to be here for six or seven weeks. And it's like they have their own Broadway show. It's not a touring show, so therefore I can put 32 people on stage. I can have an orchestra of 24 people. And it's there so you can make plans to go see it in July. You can say, oh, you know what? I think I'm going to, you know, Cousin Missy's coming in. Let's Let's take all the kids and let's go. That's exciting to me, seeing three generations come to a show eight at a time is very exciting. Is me. it the kind of a show where people would come back year after year I to see hope the same so. show? We're, we're still learning. Um, uh-huh. We uh, This year we're going back to Boston after taking a year off because Boston and St. Paul trade every year. Mm-hmm. And we'll see. But ticket sales look very strong. It's a different way. It's by it's, it's having a partnership and from running the Ordway and coming from distribution saying, look, it's your show. We'll produce it for you. We'll make sure the talent is there. You get the sponsorship. You make sure you get the better advertising deals. You talk to your local crews to say, for this show, all the money, if it does well, the majority of the money stays in the local market. It doesn't come back to a New York producer. And um, and that's exciting to me because the stronger the markets are on the road, the stronger producing will become. But there's a real problem between quality shows. As the economics are so difficult to tour, you see more and more shows that should be done with 10 musicians being done with four musicians and more shows that should have 16 people have six people. And after a while, if you're charging the same ticket, the audience is thirsty for value. Cycling back to In the Heights again. Yes, we can do fine. And because it's a new show, there's all kinds of rights that could happen out of In the Heights. But it's how do you get value? How do you make you feel like when I'm going to the theater, I'm getting great value? And when you're doing something new, you have to make sure that you create those economic engines to to create interest. You mentioned it earlier on, but it would be remiss of us not to ask uh, a little bit about High Fidelity, which was another piece of material that you'd been involved in developing. You'd heard a few songs at a workshop. Yep. Uh, it came to Broadway. It ultimately did not succeed. Um, and you closed it fairly quickly yes. uh, relative to, to most shows. At what point do you as a producer realize or not realize where the lifespan of a show is going to be? And how, mm-hmm. how did you come to make what's a difficult decision to just close no. a show Right after it opened. Yeah, it was very painful. Uh, we went out to Boston, and we learned a lot about the show. I think you know the album is right now, as we speak, being mixed, and uh, we have spent another $200,000 to produce the album. Similarly to what we did with Wild Party, Jeffrey and I produced Andrew Lippa's Wild Party, and and there was it, it it ran well, but we didn't transfer to Broadway, but we still committed 200000 to make an album. Why? 
because oftentimes you have a show that has tremendous artistic merit, which I think High Fidelity had, but for some reason didn't capture the public's imagination. Um, one of the interesting things about High Fidelity as a source material is that it's an internal monologue, basically, where he's deciding, you know, how to grow up. It's it's a bit Peter Pan. It's uh, it's uh, it's a universal story, but it's not the largest arc you would have necessarily in in a musical in a in a musical. And I think what happened was is that uh, Amanda Green, who I think is one of the finest lyricists, and Tom Kidd, great composer, and David Lindsay Bear, and Walter Bobby is a director. They created a wonderful evening taking this and dramatizing, which is basically an internal monologue. It was so different and perhaps didn't have a big enough arc that um, – and this happens. You know, something's in the air and uh, the criticism was primarily universally like, who cares? And I cared a great deal because I thought what they did with the story and how they took the source material and – I thought it was revolutionary what they did and, and the set and everything was great. But you know what? The people who distribute information about the show uh, didn't like it. The critics didn't like it. And at some point, you have to decide, you know what? It's too snowy to go out today. And you're stuck in. And what we had to do is we had to batten down the hatches. We knew that if we kept running, we would lose the entire investment. And we didn't see uh, the ticket sales react in any way. And the word of mouth was fine, but we needed it to be brilliant. And uh, that's part of the problem of having a five hundred thousand dollar a week nut. Now, if we had a hundred and twenty thousand a week nut, we could have evenly we could have weathered the storm, but there was no way we were going to weather it. And um, so, you know, we returned about ten percent. We're going to return about ten percent, and it was the right thing to do. And we're going to make the album, and hopefully, people will listen to this music and say, you know what, I know how to make that show. And it's you know, who knows, who knew Chicago. <laughs> the, the current production 10 years later would have the success it has. I am a true believer that although High Fidelity failed uh, commercially in 2007 or the end of 2006, uh, I have a feeling that uh, you will see High Fidelity uh, again and again, and it's up to somebody else to reinvent it. But the source material is there, and the artists deserve to have their work heard. It's really wonderful. A theme you keep coming back to is the issue of, you know, how do you connect with an audience? How do you find an audience? And I'm curious, obviously, as an American, you have some sense of what American audiences may look for. You certainly, Rent has, has played in London. Uh, you've got Avenue Q there now, and you're gearing up for Drowsy Chaperone uh, coming in June in London. Is there a different perspective when you look at taking a show to London, or how do you produce a show in London because there are some cultural differences between them. It, it's very interesting. We just had auditions in London and uh, we're looking at lines we're going to have to change. For instance, they don't they don't know the, the drug Zoloft, uh, which is a line. <laughs> that's, a, that's a detail. <laughs> yeah. But is, 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 there, the, is there an audience yes. sensibility that's yes. different between the countries that you have to account well, for? Well, definitely. Rent did not capture their imagination. Um, I don't think the uh, the uh, the subject matter of the East Village and dealing with HIV and homelessness was something that the British West End public um, related to. 
and we did about but the young people loved it but a lot of the young people don't go to the weren't going to the west end at that time um, and uh, they were going to see the RSC in school but they didn't ever think the west end was really for them um, uh, Avenue Q is doing very well. We're, we're, we just got nominated for Olivier, and yeah, we'll equally, see what happens. You know, it's, it's seemingly a very New York, is, urban kind of show. It is New York and urban, but it also is very political in its sensibility, and it's not necessarily um, – uh, uh, it's more of a liberal bent, uh, Avenue Q, and its politics. And I think the British sort of enjoy that, that sort of poking fun at, at, at some of the uh, issues of, of political correctness in America. Um, but uh, that shows – and Drowsy Chaperone, I am very encouraged because if you look at the whole idea of Drowsy Chaperone, so much of the technique – again, it was written by Canadians. But how do you – in fact, <laughs> the ad in, in London might be how do you, how do you write a great uh, Broadway musical, hire four Canadians. Um, the idea that it comes from musical. If you're the sensibility, it's stepping out and just having fun. And, and there's a vaudeville aspect and an English musical aspect to the whole conceit. Of uh, of how this record comes to life, and uh, remain, remember uh, Beatrice Stockwell. Uh, it was in the original Drowsy Chaperone in 1928 in the fictional beginnings of the show, and she she was then Dame Beatrice Stockwell. So this was a woman who was appreciated, and we have Elaine Page to star as the Drowsy Chaperone, who is the biggest music theater star in London. So we're sort of playing the uh, the conceit. Uh, by having a major star uh, in London. So I'm very encouraged, but it's difficult. Two things. Real estate is much more expensive there for, in the theaters, and the theaters are smaller. Uh, I'm in a 1,600-seat theater in Drowsy Chaperone uh, in New York at the Marquee uh, in the middle of Times Square. I'll be at the Novello, which used to be the Strand. It's now renamed the Novello ever since Cameron McIntosh uh, bought the theaters. And it has 1,000 seats. But my expenses are going to be very similar. So... Um, but it's not about, again, if you think about producing as how much money you're going to make, you will fail. What you have to do is you have to say, is it good enough to sell enough tickets that I can run? Because if you're running, then you're making some money. And making some money is the key, <laughs> not, not, not trying to just swing for the fences. And then if you're lucky enough that it captures the public's imagination, the rest will take care of itself. When we got started talking about it, our guy said you were very busy man, very talented man with a lot on your plate and indeed we've covered everything from Hawaii to London and everything in between in the last hour. So on that note, Kevin McCollum, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. It's been a complete delight and pleasure. Thank like, you. Likewise. Thanks, Kevin. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you.